Welcome to Cardio Radio, a podcast of the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative, also known as Cardio. This is Dr. Michael Constant from the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, and I serve as a principal investigator for Cardio, a statewide network of Ohio's seven medical schools. Cardio is funded by the Ohio Department of Medicaid and shares best practices to improve cardiovascular health and diabetes outcomes and to eliminate health disparities in Ohio's Medicaid population. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. I am Rose Gubitosi-Klug, Chief of Pediatric Endocrinology at UH Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital and Professor of Medicine at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. Pertinent to this podcast, I served as the study vice chair for the NIDDK-sponsored treatment options for type 2 diabetes in adolescents and youth, or TODAY, study, which has raised global awareness of the aggressive course of beta cell failure and early risk for complications in youth-onset type 2 diabetes. I am also a member of Cardio's Team Best Practices. In today's podcast, we will discuss the presentation of youth-onset type 2 diabetes and compare the disease course to other types of diabetes, including type 1 diabetes, maturity-onset diabetes of youth, or MODI, and type 2 diabetes in adults. We will examine risk factors for developing youth-onset type 2 diabetes, current treatment approaches, and the early development of diabetes complications in youth-onset type 2 diabetes. With me today are my colleagues, Drs. Anuradha Viswanathan and Ryan Farrell. Dr. Viswanathan is a pediatric endocrinologist at UH Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Case Western Reserve University. She is an assistant professor of pediatrics and is the quality improvement leader for the Division of Pediatric Endocrinology. She has long-standing interest in both type 1 and type 2 diabetes and is a site PI for the TrialNet study, which is a multi-center study related to type 1 diabetes. She is involved in quality improvement initiatives to improve care for youth with diabetes and is involved in a QI initiative focusing on depression screening in youth with diabetes. Dr. Farrell is a pediatric endocrinologist at UH Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Case Western Reserve University. He is an assistant professor of pediatrics, and he has longstanding interests in youth-onset type 2 diabetes. He served as well as a member of the Treatment Options for Type 2 Diabetes in Adolescents and Youth Study. A link will be provided for this study on the website. The Today study, as it's known, was one of the largest and longest longitudinal studies of children with type 2 diabetes. He's also served as an investigator for pharmaceutical-initiated research on evolving therapies for children with type 2 diabetes. Welcome, Drs. Vithwanathan and Farrell. We will start today's podcast with a case presentation. Patient is a 14-year-old Hispanic female who was referred by her primary physician for excessive weight gain and development of acanthosis nigricans. She had little regular exercise other than gym class and described a diet heavy in rice and beans. She lived with her mother and extended family members in a trailer with variable income. Her social history also included food insecurity. Mom struggled with weight all of her life with her current weight over 400 pounds and medical conditions including type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and gout. Family history included several generations with type 2 diabetes, hypertension, obesity, and cardiovascular events including myocardial infarction and stroke. Examination was notable for a BMI of 36 kilograms per meter squared, diffuse distribution of adiposity, and acanthosis nigricans noted circumferentially on her neck as well as in her axillae and antecubital fossa. Laboratory evaluations demonstrated a hemoglobin A1c of 7.5%. 
Her treatment included dietary education and metformin. She was successful in improving her hemoglobin A1C, which remained below 6%, and in stabilizing her weight with slight weight loss. At about 16 years of age, though, her hemoglobin A1C gradually increased to over 9%. BMI increased to 40 kilograms per meter squared. She developed amenorrhea and was diagnosed with PCOS. She also developed hypothyroidism. Her school contacted us due to truancy, which the family explained was due to times when she was not feeling well because of her type 2 diabetes. Despite social work advocacy and community intervention to support healthy eating in the home, school attendance, and diabetes self-management with additional insulin therapy, clinical and social conditions did not improve, and our patient was transitioned to an adolescent group home. In the group home, staff assisted in meal planning and self-preparation limited access to food outside of meals, scheduled daily walks, and supported school attendance. Our patient lost over 50 pounds, regularly took her medications, and reduced her daily insulin requirements. She reached her goal, hemoglobin A1C of 6%, and she completed high school. So with this case in mind, let's discuss um, some of the common questions about youth onset type 2 diabetes. And first, uh, Dr. Viswanathan, we'll start with how significant is the problem of type 2 diabetes in youth? How is type 2 diabetes diagnosed in children? The prevalence of type 2 diabetes is increasing in the pediatric population. Recent statistics from the Centers for Disease Control or CDC, revealed that the incidence of type 2 diabetes in youth increased by 4.8% in the U.S. between 2002 and 2015. Type 2 diabetes incidence increased in all ages, sex, and race and ethnicity groups, while the biggest increase um, was noted in racial and ethnic minorities. Annual rates of increase are higher in the Asian Pacific Islander group, with about 7.7% increase, Hispanics, Uh, came second with 6.5% increase and blacks with 6% increase. Rates of type 1 diabetes have also increased in the same time frame, but at a slower rate of about 1.9% per year. This is in parallel with the rising prevalence of obesity in youth. Type 2 diabetes is diagnosed in youth using the ADA diagnostic criteria. These include a fasting blood glucose of greater than 126 milligrams per deciliter after at least eight hours of fasting, a two-hour blood glucose greater than 200 milligrams per deciliter diagnosed via a oral glucose tolerance test, a random blood glucose of 200 milligrams per deciliter or greater with classic symptoms of diabetes, such as polyuria, polydipsia, um, or weight loss, and a hemoglobin A1c greater than or equal to 6.5%. Thanks. Dr. Farrell, now, how is type 2 diabetes in youth different from type 2 diabetes in adults? So youth onset type 2 diabetes is characterized by more rapid and aggressive decline in beta cell function and early treatment failure of lifestyle modifications and oral medications, as highlighted earlier in our case. Uh, It's also characterized by early and rapid progression to complications, including retinopathy, kidney disease, peripheral neuropathy, cardiovascular disease, and even stroke when these youth reach only their mid-20s. In the Today study, with a mean follow-up period of about 13 years, almost 55% of participants with youth-onset type 2 diabetes developed diabetic kidney disease, 51% developed retinal disease, and 32% developed nerve disease. 
60% of the participants developed at least one complication, and 28% developed at least two complications. Staggering numbers. Um, Dr. Farrell, so how would a, a clinician differentiate between the features of type 2 diabetes in youth and, say, type 1 diabetes in youth? So type 2 diabetes in youth is characterized more typically by insulin resistance and non-autoimmune beta cell failure, similar to adult type 2 diabetes, although insulin resistance is much more substantial in youth due in part to the influences of puberty. Uh, usually there is a strong family history of type 2 diabetes, and there may also be a history of maternal gestational diabetes mellitus as well. Associations with obesity and overweight status is common, and racial and ethnic minorities, as we've mentioned, make up 80% of new cases. Thus, in considering youth at risk for type 2 diabetes, it's critical to assess the entire family for their history of diabetes onset, diabetes type, uh, treatment course, and development of complications, as this will often guide uh, clinicians in determining the potential type of diabetes that their patient may develop. Type 1 diabetes, on the other hand, is characterized by autoimmune beta cell failure and loss of insulin secretion. It's characterized by insulin deficiency rather than insulin resistance, and it's much more prevalent in Caucasians. Type 1 diabetes is managed exclusively with insulin at this time. So when should you be screening, or is screening recommended to identify youth with type 2 diabetes, Dr. Viswanathan? Um, yes, risk-based Risk-based screening is recommended before the onset of symptoms. Obviously, if there is someone that's presenting with classic symptoms such as polyuria, polydipsia, nocturia, or enuresis, they should be screened. Additionally, overweight or obese individuals, either at the time of puberty or um, after the age of 10, should be screened for type 2 diabetes if there is a strong family history of type 2 diabetes in either first or second degree relatives. If there is a maternal history of gestational diabetes mellitus, or if the patient themselves were born small for gestational age, or if they belong to a racial or ethnic minority. Additionally, youth with markers of insulin resistance, such as acanthosis nigricans, should also be screened. Um, additionally, if they have a diagnosis of polycystic ovarian syndrome, or they have developed hypertension or dyslipidemia, they should be considered for screening as well. Thank you. Dr. Farrell, so if we've identified somebody with youth onset type 2 diabetes, what, what treatments are available? So for all children with a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, a comprehensive family-based lifestyle program should be included as part of the management of this chronic medical condition. Goals should include a weight decrease of anywhere between 7 and 10 percent. While this is associated with improvements in glycemic control in adults, there is surprisingly limited data in children on the benefits of this. These programs tend to be less effective in adolescents that have more severe obesity. Uh, in the Today study, the addition of a lifestyle intervention to metformin actually did not significantly impact long-term glycemic control. Nevertheless, in individuals that sustain weight loss of more than 7% over time, actually had improvements in hemoglobin A1c, high-density lipoprotein levels, and beta cell function. So in children with type 2 diabetes, there are recommendations for physical activity that include at least 30 to 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity at least five days per week, as well as strength training uh, at least three days per week as well. Nutrition should emphasize nutrient-dense foods and avoiding calorie-dense foods limiting portion sizes, and avoiding, in particular, sugar-sweetened beverages. 
including a dietitian as part of the diabetes team, could really allow for targeted recommendations uh, for children and their, and their families. And finally, the use of community-based programs, including those uh, specifically with a school component, tend to have some beneficial impacts as well on obesity, particularly uh, in younger children. So for youth with type 2 diabetes, in addition to those lifestyle modifications, uh, in children that have hemoglobin A1c levels less than 8 to 9 percent, recommendations are also usually to begin with the, treat the initiation of metformin, titrating that dose up to the maximum tolerated dose to a maximum of 2,000 milligrams per day. This should be started in concert with addressing those lifestyle factors as we discussed, such as dietary exposures to high sources of sugar, processed carbohydrates, and lack of physical activity. Metformin at this point remains the only oral medication approved to treat type 2 diabetes in children, and it is a very safe, cost-effective medication, and it's considered our first-line treatment for youth-onset type 2 diabetes. Just recently, liraglutide was also recently FDA-approved as an additional treatment in children 10 years and older, and this should also be considered in circumstances where hemoglobin A1Cs are trending towards metabolic decompensation. So mean hemoglobin A1C reductions in children on liraglutide were about 0.64%, uh, and this medicine should be considered in children diagnosed with type 2 diabetes that's all, that are already on metformin with a hemoglobin A1C of 6.3% or higher, as those children uh, may have an increased risk for loss of glycemic control. Hemoglobin A1C levels above 8 to 9% may require the initiation of insulin, either with basal insulin alone or with prandial or mealtime insulin if needed, based on glucose trends over time. In those youth presenting with beta cell failure or diabetic ketoacidosis at diagnosis, insulin therapy is also needed, but there may be an opportunity for those children to de-escalate their insulin therapy quickly in follow-up. Other oral medications are being examined in children, including sodium glucose transport 2 inhibitors and dipeptidyl peptidase 4 inhibitors, but there's not enough evidence at this time to demonstrate their safety and benefit in youth with type 2 diabetes. Thanks, Dr. Farrell. So, Dr. Viswanathan, um, someone's uh, diagnosed a youth with type 2 diabetes, started treatment, but how do they fare? How do these youth fare over the course of their disease, short-term and long-term? In general, type 2 diabetes in youth have high rates of beta cell failure uh, when treated with metformin monotherapy. I think this is highlighted by the following case. Uh, the patient is now a 22-year-old obese male who was initially diagnosed with type 2 diabetes at the age of 15 years by his primary care physician. He was started on metformin initially with the addition of insulin within 18 months of diagnosis. He still continued to find it difficult to change his lifestyle. He was inconsistent with checking blood sugars and was missing more than 50% of his insulin doses. A1Cs were persistently in the 10 to 12 range. He was referred to mental health specialist to address possible anxiety and support lifestyle changes without significant benefit. About four years after diagnosis, he was noted to have microalbuminuria and hypertension, was started on ACE inhibitors. Lipid panel also showed gradual worsening with elevated total and low-density lipoprotein cholesterol levels, accompanied with low, high-density lipoprotein cholesterol levels. He was started on statins five years after diagnosis of type 2, 
as LDL levels continued to be elevated and echocardiogram demonstrated septal hypertrophy at the age of 19 years. He has endorsed symptoms of sleep apnea but has not followed up for further evaluation. So as we see from the case above, um, there's high rates of beta cell failure in those treated with metformin monotherapy. Within the two-day study, over half of the participants had hemoglobin A1C of 8% six years after diagnosis, despite escalation in treatment and in spite of the positive impacts of being in a research study. There is also rapid progression and high incidence of complications in youth onset type 2 diabetes as evidenced in this um, case that was presented a little bit ago. There is a 50% incidence of any microvascular complication by nine years since diagnosis and 80% within 15 years of diabetes duration. Cardiovascular events during the study, um, which came to about 3.73 per 1,000 patient years, were also profound considering that the age of the subjects, they were all youth. Multiple episodes of myocardial infarction, congestive heart failure, coronary artery disease, and stroke uh, were noticed in individuals in their 20s and 30s. There's a higher rate of microvascular complications noted in, in people of color and higher rate of microvascular complications in those with more significant insulin resistance, higher hemoglobin A1C, high blood pressure, and dyslipidemia. Thanks, Dr. Viswanathan. Now, Dr. Farrell, um, so much of this um, speaks to the underlying pathophysiology being very aggressive, but the treatments can manage the disease and manage it well. But what are the factors that impact missing medications in children diagnosed with type 2 diabetes? In children that have type 2 diabetes, there are several different things that can impact the missing of medications. Uh, within the TODAY study, self-described life stressors, including unstable housing, food insecurity, illness in family members, and uh, other things can all increase the odds of missing oral medications in an additive manner. And this is often the case with many of our uh, patients with type 2 diabetes, given their socioeconomic backgrounds. The use of insulin, in addition, is associated with an increased frequency of missing diabetes medications, which is kind of unfortunate. And importantly, taking additional oral medications actually did not significantly impact the risk of missing diabetes medications. So Providers should not necessarily feel that they have to withhold additional necessary treatments for fear that this would impact diabetes medication uh, dosing. Uh, coexisting depression and mental health uh, impacts are obviously also important and are also associated with irregular medication dosing. However, in individuals that uh, have coexisting depression that are prescribed psychiatric medications, the adherence uh, to those diabetes medications does actually stabilize in the following years. Dr. Viswanathan, so once people are started on treatment, um, how should individuals be monitored over time with youth onset type 2 diabetes? So youth with type 2 diabetes should have a visit at least once every three months. They need to have a blood pressure checked at every visit as well as a hemoglobin A1C test. They also need an annual evaluation of their kidney function with urine microalbumin to creatinine ratio and a lipid panel and a yearly eye exam. Importantly, mental health issues such as depression and anxiety as well as social stresses such as food insecurity and poor social support that might make adherence to lifestyle modification and medications should be assessed at every visit. Screening for sleep apnea 
non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and in female patients, polycystic ovarian syndrome should also be considered um, periodically as um, suggested by symptoms. Thank you. Very comprehensive monitoring over time, obviously. Um, so we brought up in the beginning, Dr. Viswanathan, when should when should we consider whether this is maturity onset of diabetes of youth or MODI? In uh, a nationwide study called SEARCH, um, which just looked at diabetes incidence and prevalence in various regions of the U.S., uh, it was noted that about 8% of subjects had antibody-negative C-peptide-preserved diabetes. When they were noted to have MODI, or maturity-onset diabetes of youth. In the today's study, recruitment was limited to overweight and obese kids with antibody-negative type 2 diabetes, and about 4.5% of subjects were noted to have MODI. There were no specific ethnic or racial groups or clinical characteristics that pointed towards a MODI diagnosis. In general, though, MODI is a genetically inherited form of diabetes that is due to autosomal dominant single mutations. Therefore, there's a strong, uh, at least three-generation family history of diabetes. Uh, treatment for MODI is dependent on the specific type. MODI 2 has stable, mild hyperglycemia, and usually there is no loss of glycemic control deterioration. While MODI 3, which is a HNF1 alpha mutation, and MODI 1, which is a HNF4 alpha mutation, show glycemic deterioration with standard type 2 diabetes treatment with metformin. Sulfonylurea medications are the preferred drugs, although in many individuals, eventual insulin treatment may be required. There could also be some history of macrosomia and or hyperinsulinism at birth with these types of MODI. MODI 5, which is HNF one beta mutation is associated with renal anomalies and a greater degree of insulin dependence. So with all of this, Dr. Farrell, you know, sometimes um, initial treatment can be started at a primary practitioners, but things get complicated as we've discussed. When, when should providers feel comfortable referring to an endocrinologist? Yeah, so certainly I think any child uh, that has a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, we would be happy to uh, work and take care of. But in some instances where that may be more challenging, certainly there are cases where it may be more important. In particular, when hemoglobin Cs are unable to be reduced to less than 7% within six months of diagnosis, a referral to an endocrinologist would be appropriate. As a multidisciplinary team that includes diabetes educators, dietitians, and psychologists might be able to help improve adherence and assist in the escalation of care. Uh, it's clear from what we've learned over these last 15 years that our tools to manage youth onset type 2 diabetes are insufficient. And given how aggressive this condition is, we must continue expanding available treatments for children. However, moving forward, we will also need to identify ways to prevent the development of youth onset type 2 diabetes. And working with families and children from a young age will be necessary to modify the risks that predict this disease. Thank you both. Thank you, Dr. Farrell, for that summary. I agree. Early identification and treatment, as we've discussed, will go a long way. Thank you, everyone, to our featured guests for joining us today and to all of you, our listeners, for tuning in to Cardio Radio. This concludes today's podcast. Be sure to visit cardio.org to learn more about the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative.